Welcome, everybody. You are listening to No Co Cinema here on WGM Plus, your guide to cinema here in Chicago, but also around the world. I am your host, Tom Hush, here with my lovely, beautiful, oh, so beautiful. Thank you, co host oh, named you f- Connor Nord. Connor, Connor Nordelius. <laughs> Connor Cornelius. Tom, he is you, here. You flatter me. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, you know, they say flattery is the most sincere form of something. Uh, I've I've heard you say that, so yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and take it as a compliment. Yeah, stole that away for a rainy day. Exactly, exactly. So we're gonna get started right away here because there's a lot of news to be talking about here in our uh, coming soon segment. We're gonna be talking about some of the business of film, uh, both in Hollywood around the world, but really Hollywood is uh, where it's at right now, especially with the release of the new DC film. Wonder Woman. So tell us a little bit about some of the stuff going around Wonder Woman. A lot of controversy. Yeah, there is. Uh, And just uh, as a quick aside, it pretty much rips, Tom. Uh, It's been doing pretty well in 37 from 37 international markets raked in eighteen point seven million dollars. Wow. Opening. And that's opening day. Basically, we're we're recording this on a Saturday. So it came out yesterday for us. And it's it's dominating specifically in the Philippines. Uh, it's the really? third highest opening uh, for a Warner Brothers property after Batman versus Superman and uh, Man of Steel, which, in my honest opinion, were not that great. No, I'm pretty excited to see this. Yeah, very excited to see Wonder Woman. Full disclosure: neither of us have gotten to see it yet, but uh, really, the the cultural impact is speaking for itself, just in terms of its existence. Yeah, it's absolutely uh, raking in a lot of controversy. Some because of most mostly because of stupid people it yeah. seems like uh <laughs> I think abroad right yeah abroad uh an entire country lebanon is trying to ban wonder woman uh because its star gal gadot is uh is israeli yeah an israeli actress wow that is um i mean and and you know there are political things surrounding it and we're not trying to make a statement about uh, anything like that but you know we can't help as film fans we can't help but find it a little bit ridiculous when we're hearing that art is being suppressed and this is a big budget movie it's still art is being suppressed because of such I, I'm going to say I'm going to say petty petty things exactly I don't think that uh, the fact that Gal Gadot is Israeli has any bearing on the character Wonder Woman itself mm-hmm. and I don't think that that the movie, uh, again, full disclosure, we haven't seen it yet, but I, I would be very surprised if Wonder Woman uh, made her voice heard on any one way or another about the things that Lebanon is uh, yeah. upset about. Yeah, as far as we know, this is not some sort of like pro-Israeli like propaganda film. Yeah. It's just as far as I know, she's just yeah. As far as we know, but this this is just uh, it's. I think. Uh, absolutely ridiculous. I may uh, maybe it has also something to do with the fact that she's a woman. Uh, maybe you know maybe it is just the Israeli thing. The point is is that it's being banned. I don't like hearing things are banned unless they have some like unless they have some legitimate reason for them to be banned, not just because you don't agree with the nationality of someone. I think it's insane. And taking this what some might call baseless outrage and condensing it into one single person. Uh, we do have a 
sort of a ridiculous story. Right, uh, and this involves the Alamo Draft House. Yep. Uh, they recently decided to do a very cool thing. It's an an all female showing, and they actually had to add an, at least another one, if not another couple uh, showings, uh, all female showings of Wonder Woman, and that's open to all women and all female identifying people. Yeah, they're embracing their girl power. Exactly. And uh, you know, what a great thing for Alamo Draft House to be doing, but naturally, people have to be out there to ruin it for everybody. Of course. So, uh, one man, Stephen Miller, uh, wrote a letter finally taking it to the uh, fascist female left <laughs> and uh, buying a ticket to an all-female uh, an all-female showing at the Alamo Draft House and uh this film, a uh, a new installment in the DC universe, is of course getting an extremely limited release, playing yeah. on <laughs> at most ten theaters throughout the entire world. So um, naturally, Mr. Miller he has feels, to see it exactly. And uh, or, oh, wait a minute, wait. Actually, it's a it is a a DC film, and it's a Warner Brothers film, and it's in literally every theater for. <laughs> all, Pretty much all day, I imagine. Yeah, you can find it virtually anywhere except for, I guess, Lebanon. Um, uh, so we have some words for Stephen Miller. Grow up, man. Yeah. What what really gets me about this is that if even if you want to take whatever sort of politicking you want out of it, it's just like a it's like a it's just an event. Like it would be the same thing if you know what we're going to do an all family showing of uh, Finding Dory. And you have to have kids. Are you going like what kind of idiot would like <laughs> type an open letter? I should be able to see Finding Dory whenever I want. Just because I didn't have kids, what I can't see Finding Dory. Yeah, a grown man can't go to a theater. Yeah, what do you? Th- where else am I supposed to watch this? One of the other four hundred thousand theaters that you can find in this great country. That's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I just Stephen Miller. Grow the hell up. Grow the- this is stupid. You it's it's a it's a good event for women and female identifying people. This is a big moment for comic books right now because and and comic the superhero genre because this is the first re- really the first female led massive release in the superhero genre. It's Wonder Woman. She is an icon in the American zeitgeist. Just let them ha- let us have this. Yeah, Can we just on. have a nice thing for once where we do something good for women and people who identify as women? Like, good God. It's just, just buy a ticket to Regal and go see yeah. it in IMAX. So I, my question is, is, he bought the ticket. They're not going to let him in. Yeah, well, he said in his open letter he mistakenly believes that um, it's a – it's an open space to the public. It's a public space, Wrong. a movie theater. Yeah, but uh, movie theaters uh, are not uh, public space. They're privately owned. So yeah. people can absolutely close their doors to people if they want to. Yeah, and um, I feel like he would probably you know, claim discrimination or something like that, but I feel like most people would just be like, just why? Yeah. It's just a special showing. It's not saying that you can't see the movie. It's just saying you can't see it at this time. This is a special event. So, I don't see it picking uh, up much traction there. No, that I really don't. He's gonna get. He's gonna walk in. They're gonna say no, and they're gonna give him a refund. They're gonna give him his money back. Be like, we don't want your money for this. Speaking of protests, we have uh, some pretty exciting news come to us from uh, Netflix, uh, and this is actually a, a story about a protest who uh, actually made a great impact on the uh, on the human story. 
Um, Netflix recently acquired the worldwide rights to a uh, documentary called The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson, uh, which is a documentary about the transgender activist from uh, Oscar-nominated director David France. Right, and David France did the documentary How to Survive a Plague, and um, that is a great documentary about the AIDS but just about the AIDS, AIDS the AIDS epidemic, um, the AIDS crisis, whatever you want to call it, just um, when people were being heavily discriminated against, uh, especially the gay community, because of um, its perce- the the virus's perception as a quote unquote gay disease. Exactly. So I think he's a great person to be taking this on. Yeah, and France, uh, as a journalist in that time uh, who lived through it and saw it firsthand, dedicated the film to uh, his uh, deceased partner, since deceased yeah. partner. Um, this this movie about Marsha P. Johnson uh, was an American drag queen, a sex worker, and a gay liberation activist, most notably uh, took part in the Stonewall riots, uh, which were on the surface a spontaneous and violent demonstration outside of the Stonewall Inn in Manhattan, uh, New York City. But it is widely considered to constitute the single most important event leading to the gay liberation movement. And the modern uh, the modern uh, movement for LGBT rights in America. Absolutely, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And um, it's it's good to know that Netflix is uh, a company that is bankrolling these types of projects. Absolutely, you know they have so much money. Why not use it for uh, something interesting and something uh, profound and important? And um, that's why. And I'm going to tie this into some other news with uh, the Cannes Film Festival which will no longer consider any entries from Netflix. Um, they do not consider Netflix to be, uh, you know, worthy, I guess, of of film of that film festival. They believe that the, any films that are entered into Khan must, um, must be released in an actual theater, in a traditional theater format. And what a shame it is that because this movie will be bankrolled by Netflix and will most likely premiere on Netflix that it couldn't be considered a work of art, at least by the people at con. Um, now, obviously we haven't seen the movie. We don't know what it looks like or what it's going to, what kind of quality it's going to have, but just in terms of its subject matter, I think it deserves a place. It deserves a seat at the table. Exactly. And Khan isn't exactly a paragon in, uh, forward-thinking rules. It has come under fire uh, recently for having certain regulations that they require of their guests. Uh, Women have to wear high heels, I believe, is one Mm -hmm. example. So, you know what, Khan? Grow up. Grow up, Khan. (laughs) Khan! Khan! There's so many people just being dumb right now in the film industry. Just don't... Just let people make the damn movies. Let people screen the damn movies. Um, And to another point on this is... uh, I know Netflix... I don't believe Netflix was involved, but Netflix was actually where I discovered another great movie about the trans community uh, called Tangerine. And that's... Yeah, it was a shot entirely on, like, an iPhone. And it's about... Yeah, it's about a, a, a trans sex worker and less, like, their journey through like the streets of LA and it's real. it's a great movie and it's great for visibility. So, um, hopefully we can have, you know, more, uh, more films like this that are dealing with the trans community directly and honestly and, uh, respectfully. So Um, thank you, Netflix. Thank you, Netflix. Picking up the death and life of Marsha P. Johnson. Yeah, definitely keep an eye out for that. You'll, you're, you're going to want to watch it. You'll want to watch it. 
Next up, we're going to be talking to Matt Stork, and he is a Chicago-based writer and director who recently completed work after a very long time uh, on his first feature film titled Take Back the Knife. And it's uh, a horror movie that, for all the quips and one-liners, it ultimately asks some very serious questions about female roles in horror, the film industry, and also about toxic masculinity. We're very excited to be talking to him. He's coming up next here on No Co Cinema on WGM+. Stay tuned. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to No Co Cinema here on WGN+. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago and around the world. Back again with us, Connor Cornelius, fantastic co-host. Hello, Tom. Good to see you again. Yeah. It's only been uh, less than five minutes. Since we last saw each other, yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad that you made it. I'm glad that we're uh, back for this. We're back. I'm no longer feeling lost. (laughs) Exactly. You found your way back to us. Let us begin. (laughs) Let us begin. We're going to get into our feature presentation segment. And this is where we look at a filmmaker or writer or actor or someone here in the cinema community in Chicago that is doing some really cool, really interesting stuff that we think that you need to know about. This week, we are going to welcome Matt Stork. He is a writer, he is a director, and he has got a really fantastic movie here. It is called Take Back the Knife. Welcome to the program, Matt. Thanks, guys. Really happy to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Now, Take Back the Knife. This is a pretty interesting concept. Uh, I guess to give it a a genre, it's kind of almost uh, postmodern horror. Would you say that, Connor? Yeah, absolutely. It has an almost comic vibe. I think. I yeah. think the and I I, uh, I was talking about this with Matt earlier. I don't want to uh, divulge too much plot information because there right. are a few movements which you know are uh, you don't want to give that away necessarily. But I think that some of those actually will have a bearing on the discussion that we'll have. Absolutely. So, Matt, if you could uh, just very briefly tell us what is Take Back the Knife? Take Back the Knife, in my mind, is sort of what happens after a horror movie. Um, It features three uh, survivors of past traumas, separate traumas, that uh, through rehabilitation uh, meet each other in a group and decide to go for a weekend outing in the woods. Someone comes after them thinking, oh, the three girls in the woods, you know, the typical horror movie stuff, but they've survived this thing before, so they can kind of turn it on the person that's coming after them. Yeah, so it's kind of a uh, subversive look at um, at horror movies, tropes of horror movies, women in horror movies especially. Um, something I really enjoyed about this movie is that it is completely female-driven. There are male characters, but they're relegated to these monster roles. So um, how did it feel being the writer writing a movie that is completely fronted by women despite not being a woman yourself. It wasn't something that I necessarily said, like, I'm going to only do a female movie and I'll only have females in the lead. It was just those type of characters, like the final girls in horror movies and things, have always been my favorite characters in the horror movies, and I'm I'm a big horror movie fan. Um, So when it came time to writing my first feature – 
this sort of excited me to sort of take those characters that have been uh, favorites of mine and sort of give them a whole movie instead of just having them be side characters or the one character that makes it at the end, give them a whole, you know, full feature devoted to that. So it wasn't so much going into it, that idea, but once once that sort of seed had been planted, then it was like, okay, now we've got to do like this sort of cool feminist thing now that I've got this idea. The subversion of the film, it uh, almost harkens to the works of, like, it, it finds the comedy in the horror genre and that not the other way around, right? right? So it reminds me sort of of the works of, like, Edgar Wright more recently and then even Wes Craven with Scream. Were they uh, big influences on you as a kid or did they inform the uh, filmmaking process for you in any way? I think so. Um, and I think so more... More the writing came from that. Uh, definitely a big fan of like Scream. Uh, that came out when I was like seven years old, and I saw it then, and it was just you know big, big, big deal for me as a kid, and I really loved that movie. So I you know became a fan of like Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson, the writer of the movie, and uh, I think I would even say that Kevin Williamson is probably one of my favorite writers, film writers of all time. And so sort of the way that Scream was able to do it, I kind of wanted to do something similar, but not the same. Um, I would say that was definitely a big influence. And yeah, um, uh, you know, just, just in general too, 80s horror movies were also just a big influence on the writing of the movie as well. Uh, just having seen so many slasher movies as a kid, as many as I could, um, as many as I could eat up, uh, those became very in the front of my mind when writing. Yeah. And the characters do kind of fulfill, as we've talked about the, the tropes, of sorts, but they also um, they get around it a lot. Um, you were saying off mic that everybody who's seen the movie so far has a favorite, and it's never the same one. Not yeah. there's not universal. Oh, this is the best character in the movie. Um, what I mean, what does that feel like hearing that all the characters kind of speak to people in different ways, and it doesn't. You know, there's not one hero. They all kind of play a role in it. Uh, that's that's so exciting to me to hear um and i love that like yeah everyone seems to have a favorite because i i wanted to make sure when i was writing the movie to not give somebody more time than somebody else and stuff like that uh and each one in my mind was such a separate character i didn't just want to have these three final girls all sound like the same final girls you know i wanted them to each have their own voice and things like that and that was something prior to even scripting was something i worked on uh, with the girls because I knew them before uh, making the movie. I worked with them to like, okay, this is my idea for a character. How can we make him real? Right. And specifically my favorite character is uh, Barbie, who is this kind of, I mean, I would say that all the women in there are kind of have this tough edge, but um, Barbie is the most traditionally tough looking she has you know a, a strange haircut it's like almost a mohawk sort of deal she wears lots of black lots of chains but uh she's an extremely damaged character and um she kind of gets around the final girl thing with her uh her character she almost wants to die um there's a scene when they're exploring the different traumas of the final girls in uh, take back the knife where she faces her monster, this kind of sea, this nuclear sea creature of sorts. <laughs> the, it seemed, was that a riff on Jason? 
from uh, Friday the 13th a little bit? To me, that was more like a riff of like those 60s like acid-induced like drug right. monster movie things. Like, Some sort of like Toxic Avenger sort of Sludge-born trash zombie. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. <laughs> but uh, Barbie's facing this sludge-born trash zombie. I like that. I'm going to use and, that from yeah. now on, now when I pitch the uh, that character. <laughs> and uh, But instead of being afraid, she kind of talks about how she came to the, the scene initially wanting to throw herself into the water drown and she starts telling the you know the monster just do it just do her in uh what was that like to have a character that was begging essentially for death um it was it was difficult and what we tried to do with her was she she had probably the most darkness you know with with that like you're mentioning but when she's just sort of interacting with the other girls and it's not so much about like the past and it's not about you know their the threat that's in the movie besides like her past um it we tried to actually make her almost like the super positive one of the group then uh so it was a nice balance uh in my head when she wasn't you know divulging about her past or worrying about the the oncoming threat i sort of had in mind something like a dot from Animaniacs where she's like, she's got like this, this like over the top pleasantness to her, but then also has that dark side. And so I thought like having that would make her a more multidimensional character instead of just having her be some sort of like, I wanted to die. Now I still want to die. You know, I didn't want her to just be like this super dark character. So, you know, giving her that pleasantness and almost over the top pleasantness, but then still giving her that look, with mm-hmm. the mohawk and like the camo and the black clothes and the chains and things like that, I just really enjoyed that juxtaposition. That was something that I worked on uh, with Emily, who plays that uh, character, and she does a fantastic job. She's very, very believable in the role. And to sort of bring it back, you're another one of the characters uh, who who I really enjoyed, mostly because of just the comedic pacing. I thought she was hilarious. Was uh, uh, Vixen? Um, I just. She was so uh, sort of the leader of the group, right? The person that sort of organized everything. And she interfaced with the counselor at the beginning of the film, which uh, brought had brought all of the girls together and brought even a shape of the things to come, right, with, mm. the, with what they were going to do. So I, I was uh, – I was struck by how much world building you end up doing just through, you know, sort of the exposition of the characters' backstories. Um, and I did want to just ask you, what kind of a world is this that that we're living in, that we're uh, watching, you know, uh, for our eyes? I was struck by how many horror tropes are used throughout. It does, it does just give a great sense of the world. Um, and despite all of the the sludge-born trash zombies and the undead bully victims and the <laughs> necrophiliac, like, cannibals, you know, mm. uh, I like how that informs the character's life experiences. Um, and I did have a question. Uh, the Maybe the most important thing that struck me about the world, no bears? <laughs> no, <laughs> no bears. They were sleeping at the time. Yeah. Um, I will never claim to be a nature expert or <laughs> anything like that. <laughs> I put them in the woods, was like, oh, we should have some lines about bears. And I was like, nah, I don't know how I'm actually going to explain it because I don't know anything about camping or bears or anything like that. But <laughs> I think they did a nice job because I made sure to write the characters also not knowing anything about camping or the woods or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, you definitely do a, a good job of addressing the ridiculousness of, of the premise in certain ways and finding humor in that. Yeah. 
And I think I think what we, I guess, to answer sort of your question about what world is this, to me, it's kind of a two parter. It's 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 a world in which horror movies are real. You know, so they've survived different horror movies. In my mind, the three flashbacks that show their uh, their journey is uh, the endings of three different horror movies. So, in in my in my eyes, it is a horror movie world. But at the same time, the the second part of that is maybe that's the real world too, because the real world's a little scary t- as well. So, um, I I think it's a little bit of both. And I do have I want to play a clip here from Vixen's uh, scene, where it's the ending of her horror movie, and. Um, for the sake of description, it's shot in all black and white, and they're in uh, a graveyard surrounded by woods, and it's Vixen and another character. Let's uh, let's take a listen here. Where'd it go? I don't know. Can we sit? I have asthma. Really? I'm sorry, yes! Ethan Palmer. I think I know that name. I think I do, too. Actually, I think I gave him a handjob at a movie theater once. He came in my popcorn. Extra butter? Huh. See? You're funny. They didn't want to invite you, but I told them, I was like, hey guys, fix funny. You didn't want to invite me. I kind of had to beg them. So I could be home right now. Sorry. No, Ethan Palmer is that kid with a bum leg who got thrown over into the cemetery by bullies in like 1986 or something. He like got really scared and couldn't get out, so he climbed under some like old fence and scratched up his face really bad and bled to death supposedly. <laughs> Let me guess. They never found the body. I think we just had a party in Ethan's graveyard. I think you just convinced me we're going to die here tonight. Mom! What? <gasps> Shit! <laughs> it's so is... weird hearing it and not seeing it. <laughs> yeah, it is. It but is the a... blood sounds really good now that I... It does. <laughs> and I, I love that it, it's a total spurt. It's yeah. Just... Yeah, that, that happens a lot in the movie, right? Yeah, uh, <laughs> that one in particular was really funny because I said, okay, well, basically we had like one of those pool toys that is like the water launchers and we just filled it with fake <laughs> blood. Um, and it was really funny in that particular scene I, that was when I was talking to Ashley who plays uh, Vixen. I was like, I'm going to hit you with it. And she's like, that's totally fine. Just don't get it on my glasses. My glasses are new. And when you see the movie, it only oh, hits yeah. her in the glasses. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, aiming for the neck. I was the one shooting the blood. I don't have very good aim. Don't let me around the blood pumps anymore. You know, <laughs> if you're gonna if you're gonna be in a horror film, there's gotta be a reasonable expectation of some of some blood getting on oh, things yeah. you don't want blood in. Yeah. Yep. It's uh but with that scene, um again, it's the the balance of the humor, but also the horror. I love that um, the self-awareness of it, the character that Vixen is with is just like, you know, you've can like he says, uh, what was it? Let me guess. They never found the body. Yeah. Mm. And you've convinced me that we're going to die here tonight. Like he (laughs) knows exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. And I I think that I think that's totally plays into the horror movie world where Mm -hmm. like people are not only aware of horror movies as movies, but like maybe it is like just a world thing. Um, and yeah, I wanted to make sure w- yeah, there's this over almost over the top convoluted uh, exposition about what Ethan Palmer the killer is, and I was like, just say it as fast as you can yeah. <laughs> right before we kill off uh, your partner in the scene. <laughs> exactly, and it it comes off as this kind of like they, I mean, they just know like it's it's already predetermined. This is where the movie's going to go. This is what they're this is what they're looking at in terms of. Uh, 
their fates. So uh, very, very funny scene, very cool scene, especially seeing it in all black and white. I love the graveyard setting as well. Uh, we're going to take just a little break here, and then we're going to come back, talk a little bit maybe about your influences, the the actual making of the film, and I want to ask you about some of your favorite final girls. How's oh, that sound? Yeah. Sounds good. All right. We'll be right back very soon here on NoCo Cinema on WGM+. Thanks again for listening to No Coast Cinema here on WGM+. If you like the show, head on over to Facebook.com and search No Coast Cinema Podcast. And give us a like there for all the news you need on No Coast Cinema, on film, anything that you like about the show or the cinema industry. What's up, everybody? You are back again here on No Coast Cinema from WGM+. I'm your host, Tom Hush, joined, as always, by my co-host, Connor Cornelius. And he, it looks like he survived the break. He managed to get through it all. Barely. I think we're all uh, struggling a little bit here on this beautiful Saturday morning. Yeah, we're all worse for wear because of the sun. Uh, the sun is evil. Shout out to the sun. Yeah. <laughs> Can't wait till your eventual heat death sometime in the near future. (laughs) But we're back talking horror and music. Yeah, horror and music. And we're here with our very special guest, Matt Stork. He is the writer and director of Take Back the Knife, a film that subverts the horror genre and puts the ladies in front, in focus to uh, take on killers and the horror world and go on a camping trip as well thanks again for coming on the show with us matt yeah this is awesome thanks all right so connor i know you wanted to talk a little bit about the music of the film and the music is really great yeah i love just how uh i did have a question about when it was done because it reminds me a lot of it's very synthy uh it's very ominous reminds me almost of uh the disaster piece score in the film it follows even stranger things which does employ some horror elements when did the when was the score written for this film so it was done in pieces uh sort of most of it was finished uh probably 2015 i want to say this was a long process for the movie i'll talk about that in a sec but uh it was done kind of in pieces and when we kind of had the final edit put together we had a few of the songs which was in 2015 and i that was right after or 2015 was the same year as it follows i believe and then uh, that was before uh, Stranger Things. Uh, but I would say, uh, you know, by the time we got it finished, It Follows had come out. And I don't think Stranger Things had been out by the time we had finished the score. But uh, we were definitely influenced by all the the independent horror movies that right now are using 80s-type sound. Uh, and we weren't trying to, you know, fall in the same category. It was just like we all loved 80s horror movies, so yeah, that's it what just, we wanted to do. Yeah, it just wor- it really works with the setting, you know, with um, all that, you know, John Carpenter famous yeah. for doing a lot of his own music, that heavy synth, that kind of pulsating thing. It really works, and you use it to great effect here in the film. Yeah, it really colors the world, gives you an experience or gives you a, an idea that this is a horror world from horror, you know, yeah. from the genre itself. Yeah, and it uh, the just uh, how much of a low budget movie we were. 
the guy who shot the movie also did the score for the movie. Boom. So <laughs> double header. Two birds with one stone. <laughs> and Dance. the person who did the sound editing was Vixen, correct? Correct, yes. Wow. So yeah, we uh we kept it small. We kept it tight. But yeah, you know, go. we had people we could trust, so and you mentioned that this was a long, you know, a kind of a long process. You mentioned uh, off air that this started in 2013. You started, yeah. We start. We shot uh, probably most of the movie uh, was about a 13 day shoot. Uh, was weekends when everybody was available, um, and we shot in August of 2013. And then it took us about a year to get through sort of the first phase of editing. We had like two editors drop out that, you know, started work on it and then just dropped out. And then uh, probably another year working with our final editor to get sort of the final cut of the movie uh, out. And then uh, Ashley, who plays Vixen in the movie, who did the sound editing, did a lot of the editing cleanup as well. Um, So we had a final cut, final, final cut, probably the beginning of 2016. Uh, and then, you know, the whole process of trying to get the movie seen and, you know, tightening things up and finishing up the music, things like that through 2016. And then uh, finally scored the uh, distribution deal at uh, the end of 2016. So, wow. yeah, long process. Long process. <laughs> How did it feel to be working on a single project for such an extended period of time? Uh, it was it was it almost killed me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if I if, um, just be and I mean, all of us too, like uh, the core group. Of it was the three girls, myself, uh, Chase, who shot and scored the movie. We were like the five that stuck around sort of after the movie had been finished. And then like we brought on our editor, uh, Adam, who was the final editor on the movie, who did a great job. It was really just like the six of us just stressing out uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for exactly. a while. And it, But at the same time, I did want to do other projects, but I almost couldn't because this was still not done, and I couldn't like let it. I had to finish it first just before. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <clears throat> yeah, it's um when when doing these low more low budget films, I think people kind of forget how long this can take because you're doing it in conjunction with other things. You know, mm-hmm. you have you have to go back to real life. You're shooting this on the weekend. You're being a filmmaker. But then you have to go back to, you know, your everyday stuff. What mm-hmm. What is your everyday thing? What do you do when you're not filmmaking? Uh, well, they, uh, everybody thinks this is hilarious. When uh, we shot the movie, uh, Chase and I were working at David's Bridal selling wedding dresses. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I say David's Bridal paid for this movie because, yeah. Uh, you know, part of the funds we raised ourselves. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we were working there at the time. Uh, we both no longer work there. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so it's I'm trying to get involved in as many film-related things as I can to, you know, uh, I can't do the nine-to-five-day job thing. So it's uh, making films on the weekends and just doing as many other film projects and things like that uh, throughout the week and, you know, scraping by that way. Just I need to be part of the world, I guess. Yeah. That's good. I mean, I mean, if you got to immerse yourself into the whole thing, um, I mean, are you doing like PA jobs and stuff like that, or what are you doing throughout the like week? Freelance or anything? Yeah, um, I'm right now. I'm actually uh, hosting a lot of film screening events. Um, nice. Where we have, I work uh, right now for HorrorSociety dot com, and it is a website that's strictly devoted to independent horror movies, uh, and we're all over, but I'm sort of the Chicago person, so I'm like the Chicago events coordinator for them. Um, and I host screenings. Uh, right now, we do four a month 
uh, different screenings for that. And then also um, directing a stage show, an improv show uh, at Gorilla Tango Theater uh, called Assault on the Grindhouse. And it's, of course, about horror movies. (laughs) So uh, we're doing that as well. And we're four weeks into it now. it's it's June third or June second, something like that, right now. Um, and yeah, we're four weeks into it. We have four weeks left of the show, and each week we take a different uh, B horror movie from like the fifties or thirties or you know old old black and white, and the the improv troupe recreates it uh, as a comedy, just bizarre. It's the strangest <laughs> improv you'll ever see. So yeah, <laughs> um, doing doing stuff like that. Yeah. That's that's very, very cool. And, you know, as we kind of gathered, horror has been a massive influence on you. Um, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> what, were, what were what were the first horror movies that you saw and said, this is this is what I'm about. This is what I want to be making. Uh, I remember I remember watching a lot of like like I think the thing that really got my appetite for horror was like the straight to video like early 90s uh horror movies uh you know i had seen the classics and things like that and i definitely had like this insatiable appetite for horror but i think the thing that said oh people make these was the low budget stuff and not in a way like oh they can do it i can do it these movies are terrible it was like it just made it it wasn't so much that it just made it like practical in my head i was like oh the people make these movies and i want to do that you know i want to have you know, blood squirters and uh, <laughs> monsters and things like that in my movies. Um, so, yeah, and I mean, this was from a young age, too. As soon as I knew that there was people that made movies and that was like what, you know, it, they didn't just appear one day, that there were people that as soon as I knew that, I was like, I want to do that. So, and I kind of just stuck with it and I can't stop doing it now. <laughs> so were there any uh, were there any specific titles of those kind of early uh, just straight-to-home video horror movies that got you going? It sort of reminds me of The Evil Dead, the way it influenced you. Yeah, uh, Evil Dead was definitely a big influence on me. Uh, all the films of uh, Sam Raimi were definitely big. Uh, I, I always say that my favorite movie of all time is the original Evil Dead. <laughs> um, and, yeah, saw that at way too young an age. Uh, and Naturally. Just, yeah, it, yeah, it's burned in my brain now because of it, and I, but I still love it. Um, some and then like the lower budgeted stuff, like the really low budget stuff, uh, the stuff that uh, Full Moon Pictures was putting out, so like mm-hmm. Puppet Master, Subspecies, stuff like that. That was <laughs> I couldn't get enough of those, and I think a little bit of that comes through in Take Back. Um, those movies are very comic book like, and like not overtly where you know you see the pages of the comic turning like a creep show or something like that, but almost just like in their candy colors and things like that. And that was something that really influenced me making this movie was sort of like how can we have like a comic book like world yeah i think you did a great job doing that that was one of the things that struck me about it when uh when i you know when i first watched it It opens up into the clearing with the very eerie synth tolls and all that and then it shows the a killer you know his their face drained of color and then it just boom punk song all these like bright, yeah. vibrant colors, and then it's just showing all the heroines of the film. Yeah, and the shots did look, uh, you know, it did look like almost panels of the comic book. You could see, like one shot, you know, you've got the sil, you know, the silhouette of the of the killer and just the edge of their face. And the next shot, there's a knife and you know meat and a bucket and blood <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. So you can see the panels moving across. Um, I would say, f- to the point of. Um, you know the comic book look the 
scene with Barbie and her killer. And I, I'm going to keep going back to Barbie because I absolutely <laughs> love Barbie. She is my favorite character in this. We're going to have a um, fight before this armor time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, her scene with her, her monster, her assailant, is shot all in red with like these, these harsh lines across the face. And um, what was the inspiration for that? Um, it was it was more when we shot it, uh, we shot it sort of blown out. And the idea was to almost do like red lines over everything, like literally a comic book. And when we kind of tried that, it didn't look right. It just looked like we made a mistake or something yeah. like that. So we said, let's turn the whole thing red and see what it looks like. Uh, and we just tried it and it was like, oh, this is really cool and really different. Um, so we sort of just owned that and sort of played with it with the you know, overblown uh, white that we had to work with. Um, and you see snippets of that come through at the end of the flashback when it comes back to sort of real life. And uh, you see this like really white beach and everything like that. And yeah, it was re- that was definitely the most probably direct comic book influence was the trying to get like some sort of uh, almost like vomiting of color. Yeah, it. <laughs> it was like it was like a sea. Like just the opening shot of that is like the the it's the you know the ocean or the lake. Was that was is that Lake Michigan? Yeah, uh, Rogers Park Beach. We hey, shot. Yeah. Hey, yeah, I, I live right over by Rogers. Oh, Park right on. Beach. But, um, <laughs> I thought I recognized. It. I'm like, this, I've seen this sea of blood before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right see, I have seen it in a couple other independent uh, horror movies. It's something about that's really like attractive. It's the rocks and things yeah. like that. So it's yeah, it's a great location. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just that opening shot of the of the water with the red and it, um, you just you just feel like you've entered. A different plane for the the world you know there's the the logic of the movie and there's the logic of the movie movies within the movie you know each uh i almost want to call them vignettes of mm. sorts because i mean they relate to everything else that's going on but they stand alone and it's almost like i would watch those movies individually <laughs> yeah and, uh, it's very cool that way yeah it's almost reminiscent of that background story the background stories in kill bill Mm, where yeah. it goes into the anime you know, yeah, yeah. sequence. I thought that was great. Um, and sort of uh, piggybacking off of this idea of you injecting your characters into this comic book world, a lot of the dialogue uh, seems very driven by comic books as well. There's a lot of one-liners. It's very quippy. Was that uh, – that, that must have been a conscious choice, huh? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm big fan of just stylized dialogue in general. Uh, you know, I, I love – Clint Tarantino and Kevin Smith and Kevin Williamson, who I mentioned before, uh, Diablo Cody, people that are writing very, very over the top style. But at the same time, I wanted to make sure I wasn't copying any of them because there's nothing more annoying than somebody who's like riffing on Tarantino. Yeah. <laughs> so who I was in to turn make... riffing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I wanted to sort of do sort of what all those guys do uh, where they're sort of doing stylized dialogue on genre. And I was like, OK, let's do sort of my influences and riff on those instead of riffing on somebody who's already riffing. So mm-hmm. that's what I, we tried to do. Uh, and a lot, and the funny thing is too about like this comic book influence. Yeah. There's a comic book influence, the look of the movie and the writing. I don't, I'm, don't read a lot of comic books at no. all. I, I, it's almost like this influence of comic book style movies that has. So it's like this third generation that has happened yeah. with this movie. But uh, yeah, I love that stuff. So even even if I wasn't consciously doing, it, I feel like it was always in the back of my mind. Very cool. Well, it 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 all comes through and it all comes together in a great feature that um, 
Hopefully, people will get to see soon. Has it already? Been, I know we uh, talked a little bit about our friend John Davies over at Cinema mm-hmm. Obscura. Has he already screened the film? Yeah, he screened yeah. the movie. Uh, we did it back ooh, a few months ago now, maybe April or something like that. Uh, we screened it, but uh, we are talking to John about maybe doing it again. Yeah, uh, let's hope. Let's hope so. I would love to see this. Uh, we've gotten to see it on you know computer screen, but I really <laughs> want to see this big see screen it blown up. Yeah. Oh yeah, and the the. The soundtrack that Chase did for the movie is so good and like uh, big screen. Uh, they w- we did screen the movie once. Uh, we played a festival in uh, Monrovia, California, which is like close to LA, and the theater that they played it in was like a IMAX screen, yeah. <laughs> and it was insane to see the movie like that because you know I had only ever seen it on a computer screen too. Yeah. You know, with through the editing process, so that was kind of insane to see. Um, I wish we could get more big screen uh, showings of the movie, but uh, the movie is available now on DVD through our distributor right now, uh, who is LC Films. So if you just go to lcfilmsonline.com, you could pick up the DVD, the Blu-ray. The Blu-ray has some bonus features on it that we put together. Um, and yeah, hopefully we'll be doing more screenings in town because uh, yeah, I love I love seeing it with the crowd and uh, sort of seeing the feedback and hoping people aren't confused with the world that <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we drop them in. Um, and hopefully soon it'll be on uh, VOD, uh, but we're by the DVD and Blu-ray first because we're not sure yet. No, what's yeah. going on with that? <laughs> get it, get it. It's out there. All right, before we go, I just uh, let's do a quick roundtable. We're going to move on to our next discussion, but I want to know, uh, Matt, you can start. Who is your favorite final girl? So mine's just super nerdy, uh, <laughs> but my favorite final girl is actually from one of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, uh, from Nightmare on Elm Street Four. It's the Alice character, okay, uh, and I think that character really influenced the the movie as well because she's one of the few that comes back in a sequel. Uh, I know the the girl from the original comes back in three, but it's almost like a different character type. Uh, Alice comes back in five, and it sort of just picks up right after everything had happened to her and I just find her character so fascinating because in five she's like dealing with the fact that all of her friends just died uh she's gonna have a baby but Freddie's still after her so I uh I really look to that movie for I look to four and five of the Nightmare on Elm Street because I love Alice and she she's a strong character from the beginning she's dealing with like a single parent and a lot of problems with their family and she's already a strong character and like you know the Freddie attack it only makes her stronger so I really wanted to draw from her and and also just she is my favorite there you go alice from uh nightmare on elm street four and five yeah. connor what do you got um i never really thought about uh this movie as fitting in with the rest of you know other you know typical slasher films but i guess it kind of is a slasher uh wendy in the shining yeah i guess yeah she the just psychological trauma that she has to deal with throughout not even just the entirety of the movie. And if you have any background on the filmmaking process with Shelley Duvall, she really uh, had to go through a lot with Stanley Kubrick and Jack Nicholson during the making of that film. Famously so. Famously so, exactly. So, Wendy, when, um, God, what is their last name? Torrance. Uh, Torrance. Wendy Torrance. Yeah, yeah. So, Wendy Torrance. Um, and then for myself, I would say. Um, be, I mean, I am a huge fan of the Alien franchise, so I would say Sigourney Weaver's uh, Ripley as, I guess, a final girl who really takes it to a whole new level. Like, she yeah. keeps coming back. She's in all four of the, uh, the original half of the series, <laughs> and it is half. Uh, <laughs> so uh, she makes it through all those. But for me, I would say Sally Hardesty 
from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, and and she's not like they're they're fairly well defined characters in that movie, but they're pretty much lambs for the slaughter. But um, just the end when they bring her into the uh, their farmhouse and they make. You know, they make her sit at the they've got her at the table. All the lampshades are made of like human skin and antlers, <laughs> and then um, they set her up to get uh, to get whacked to death with a sledgehammer by the grandfather. Which I don't know if you guys have watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre recently. He's got this ridiculously old man makeup, and they're like, "Come on, Grandpa, get her, get her!" <laughs> like he used to work in a cattle, you know, like uh, he was an executioner slaughterhouse. in a slaughterhouse. So. Um, and she makes it out. She gets away, and she really goes through the ringer for that one. So mine would be Sally Herdesty from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But uh, speaking of Alien, we are going to do a little segment in After Credits called Series Business, where we look at a series of films and kind of discuss its place in the uh, the zeitgeist, You know, all the different installments, and try to figure out just what we think about this particular series. And we're going to be talking about, in honor of Alien Covenant's recent release, we're going to be talking about the Alien franchise. Uh, Matt, would you like to stick around, talk oh, a little Alien? Yeah, I love we're getting the Alien series. Fr- I just rewatched them all, so let's talk about them. All right. I'm fresh with it. Here we <laughs> go. Here we go. All this next on NoCo Cinema from WGM+. It's a robot. She's a goddamn robot. Man, game over, man. Game over. Get away from her, you bitch. Here, you got coming. Stop this, radiant one. I'm Stop telling it. you, get here. Pull this woman back to the infirmary. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, back again on NoCo Cinema from WGN+. Plus. I am your host, Tom Hush, and joined, as always, by Connor Cornelius. And our special guest today, Matt Stork, writer and director of the horror film Take Back the Knife. He turned the horror genre on its head and gave the knife to the ladies. And uh, we've been spending most of the show here talking to him about it. But right now we're going to get into our after credit sequence. And uh, this is where we just kind of let loose a little bit, talk a little bit about just movies in general. And uh, in honor of the release of the latest film in the Alien franchise, Alien Covenant, we wanted to do a little bit of a look back at this whole franchise. It is now, depending on who you ask, it is either six or eight films strong. (laughs) And we'll get into that a little bit. But uh, this is going to be a new segment called series business and we're getting serious people we're getting um, very serious i think we're all excited to start talking about ridley scott's tentpole film exactly um this has been a staple of the uh films the kind of the american zeitgeist for a while most people know something about the alien franchise maybe they've seen some of one or they've seen at least the first two films at one point but um i think over over the years, things dropped off. Let's let's say that. So uh, we'll kind of take this film by film, chart the story of this franchise, 
and hopefully come to some uh, consensus about where we're at. So the Alien franchise starts in 1979 with the original Alien, simply titled Alien, directed by Ridley Scott, um, story by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Sh- uh, Shusett. Uh, that's a tough one. Yeah, um, who knows? Who knows? Shusett. <laughs> and uh, the screenplay <laughs> itself also by Dan O'Bannon. Now, uh, Dan and Ronald are both credited as being the creators of the alien, the alien itself, the xenomorph, yeah, the xenomorph, the idea of the alien, and also the characters of uh, Ripley and everybody else on the ship. Um, famously, the xenomorph was designed by H.R. Uh, Giger, who, in his art book, The Necromorph, uh, drew some really truly disturbing things. Matt, have you ever seen the original sketches of the alien? Yeah, and uh, it's really cool. Uh, I re- I. I think that uh, it's one of the few times you you always see this cool art for horror movies and things like that that the concept artists draw. It's like one of the few times that it like directly translates. Like yeah. that thing is horrifying. <laughs> yeah, it looks just as scary in yeah. the book. Yeah, and as it does on film, it is um, truly one of the great works of uh, psychosexual horror. Other than my, uh, you know, adolescence. <laughs> hey. We're talking topics. <laughs> um, but, but to qu- kind of go off yeah. of that, I think that we've all rewatched the film relatively recently, na- last oh, couple yeah. of weeks. Um, and the thing that we found is it holds up so well. And I think a large part of that are the practical effects that are used. Absolutely. And um, it was a different time. I mean... As as if you're a regular listener to the show, you know how Connor and I feel about practical effects. Uh, Matt, are you a practical effects guy? Always, always practical. Uh, I know we'll, I'm sure we'll get to it when we get to Covenant, but that CGI aliens got nothing on uh, the practical in the original, right? And in the original, it's ba- it's just a guy in a suit. Like it's um, it's really all it is. And it, they just they use it to such great effect. Yeah, it speaks to the skill of the filmmaker. You can't even really tell if you're if you are watching the movie with the you know intent of giving the movie a chance to suspend your belief. It doesn't like if you really break it down. It's it's okay. Sure, it lo- it's obviously a guy in a suit. But if you're just watching it for the horror element, it does a great job, and it really does hold up. I think it's uh, the way I look at Alien is that it is the most artistic B movie ever made. <laughs> it is it is at its core, you know, it's a monster movie. It's, it's, a, it's a haunted house movie in space. Right. It's a haunted <laughs> yeah. house movie in space. Like if you break down Alien, it is so simple in its concept and it sounds like it sounds like, you know, just pure pulp. Like it's just you would find this in a, you know, a, a bookstore for a nickel. Like it's a pretty basic concept, but it's done in such a masterful way that builds suspense like you know very few movies have been able to in uh in the time before it and in the time after it really stands alone in its in its uh mastery of mood now it also introduced to us one of the great characters one of the great female characters of science fiction of honestly cinema uh Sigourney Weaver as Ripley now tell me you guys what are your feelings on Ripley well I'll tell you Tom uh just a quick aside here I always thought that the character name Ripley was arrived at by just inverting the D in Ridley <laughs> Scott's name, and I only recently found out that he did not write that movie. Yeah. So that is a total false cognate. Yeah. But uh, 
kind of what we were talking about uh, in the previous segment about the final girls, Sigourney Weaver being just this character who, in a lot of horror movies, you sort of question the final survivors, a couple of their, you know, a couple of their actions. Yeah, that, their decisions. Yeah, that lead to, like, what, the suspense or the horror element. But Sigourney Weaver seems supremely competent. Yeah. And she's among a partially... Well, there's an android aboard, you know, yeah. just a literally a machine that is living out its code, and she still somehow seems more competent and uh, capable of survival than anybody else on the ship. Right. Yeah, and I think some people would. Well, I'll I'll get in. I've got some controversial opinions on Alien, so I'll talk about that when we get to that movie. But I think uh, I think she she's just her arc throughout that movie is is she's smart and she's strong from the beginning and it o- it only proves it when she is the last one out um and i think i think it ha- it hasn't really been better than the first movie uh cuz she appears in you know the next 3 i think she's the strongest the smartest and the best in in the first movie uh and it is great to watch her arc at least through the first 3 movies but her arc just within the first movie is so strong and right. so good. Yeah, she knows exactly the the problem from the movie arises not necessarily from uh John Hurt's character getting the face hugger. That's like that's a problem. But where things get worse is when they ignore Ripley. Ripley says, "Don't bring him in here. You know, there's quarantine, there's this." She is right. She's mm-hmm. 100% correct. And um the and you know we can analyze this however you want but the male character the captain of the ship the supposed uh you know leader of the whole thing screws it up he's just like no i know exactly what i'm doing and they bring him on anyway and um you know let's just say tom scarrett doesn't make it that much longer in the <laughs> film you know and the he thing pays. Is, yeah he pays for his 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 hubris and his arrogance punish this mortal for his hubris <laughs> and you you know you got the you've got the captain it's tom scarrett it's a name it's a you know a famous person you're like this guy's the captain he's going to you know he's, he's going to save character. everybody yeah. he's like the first to go <laughs> yeah he gets he gets absolutely you know destroyed you know he's he's in the vents he's like oh yeah no here's what we're going to do i'm going to take a flamethrower into this vent <laughs> into the air vents yeah, into the air vents and just wait and just see if it pops up yeah great idea you know way to go everybody so <laughs> i do want to talk about aliens um which is the fantastic at least in my opinion fantastic follow-up that um does something that i think very few sequels do nowadays which is take a complete not maybe not complete but a big left turn and really do something different than the original. What are your guys' thoughts on Aliens? Well, James Cameron obviously directed yeah. it. A uh, big Hollywood blockbuster, blockbusting creator. Um, right. And yeah, kind of like what you were saying, the, taking the left turn with the series in a series that is largely viewed as continuously doing the same thing, mm-hmm. which is a criticism even about the most recent film which came out. Yeah. And it st- it does, speaking of, stand- of uh, holding up the test of time, um, this is a Hollywood blockbuster, which sort of reminds me a little bit of Terminator 2, because James yeah. Cameron also did that. It's a extremely watchable, extremely enjoyable action blockbuster with still that horror kind of at the center of the uh, of the action. Right. Matt, what do you think? Okay. Here we go. Hot <laughs> Controversial takes. opinion. Here we Hot go. Takes. Here we go. That's oh, why we're it, here. If you think this is kind of, wait till we get to three. Um, but uh, Aliens, okay. I could rewatch the first movie. 
over and over again. I've seen it a hundred times. I could watch it a hundred times more. I love it. Aliens, the more I watch it, the less I like it. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a good movie, and I'll still say that. I think it's a good movie. But uh, James Cameron as a writer, mm, not as strong as his visuals, I think. Uh, I'm going to give an early example of something that I had a huge problem with this last time I watched it. Um, early on in the movie, Ripley wakes up and is now in the future. And uh, Paul Reiser comes out and sort of gives the exposition of like, you know, it's been so many years. You you know, this is where you are. We found you. We picked you up, whatever. And then there's uh, then Ripley has like a chest burster and it's all revealed that it's a dream. So my question is, you've given all this exposition and then said it was a dream. I'm like, that sort of negates the like all your explanation. <laughs> is it all a dream? Like, yeah. you know, and it's just bad writing, I, in my opinion. Um yeah, you're frustrating. You're no, absolutely right. No that one wants to see my movie anymore. Uh, but, like, yeah. <laughs> but like it, you know, that was kind of frustrating early on. And then I think the movie goes on a little long. Um, Wait I could, till you see the director's cut. I've seen it. It's ooh, that is that's too long. It is. It's. <laughs> How, what's the runtime? Oh, geez. It's almost three hours. Yeah, it's like it's, a wow. three-hour cut. And the you know the regular Aliens theatrical cut is no – it's not a short movie no. by any means. And I think – I believe Alien is even a pretty pretty cool uh, just under two hours. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, it's – Alien moves a lot quicker, I think. Uh, I think that's – I think you're absolutely right in terms of that dream sequence. That's that's just like one of those things where it's like I don't know what they were thinking. They <laughs> thought it was it looked cool, right? It right. was a cool moment, but yeah. it it doesn't really fit the internal logic yeah. of the of the film. But it just seemed it seems sloppy to me. Yeah. And I was like, come on, Jim, you're better than this. <laughs> but I got I gotta ask. You can't deny the action sequences are thrilling. Well, the, I, the action sequences are great. The aliens look amazing. It's some of the best oh, yeah. practical effects work of all time. Um, and, you know, the queen alien is probably, if not, it's top five, you know, yeah. practical effects of all time. Because that's Stan Winston, I believe, mm-hmm. that did Yeah, it. yeah. And uh, it's it all that is great. And the action, I love, I love like, the the uh, military characters, you know, Bill Paxton, of course, Game Over Man. You yeah. Know, that's, it, it's all awesome. I love all that. But there is a lot of time spent in between those great action scenes, just talking, just giving exposition. Um, and, you know, when I was a kid, of course, I just ate it all up. I love it. But as I've gone back and rewatched Aliens a few times, I'm like, ah, this isn't as great as I remembered it. And I'm almost more sad for myself that, I, you know, I loved it so much. <laughs> and now it's like one of those movies as I grow up, I'm just like, ah, I don't love it as much as I did. Right. So, yeah. Connor, do you have any more Aliens thoughts? What, where you stand on it? I think it's a great movie. Um I it, I love watching it. I, like you said, you know, just taking that left turn, doing taking a lot of uh, making a lot of choices uh, consciously to do things different than the first one, uh, subverting that expectation of the android going to be sort of a, uh, an antagonistic character at some point. They did that. They did the opposite of that in Aliens, yeah. right? But tracking Sigourney Weaver Ripley's character throughout these movies, uh, you mentioned that you maybe had some, or oh, that was Aliens. Three or Alien Three, Alien yeah. Three that you wanted to that you wanted to talk about with Ripley's. Um, yeah, I mean it ties into Aliens, but yeah, we can get into Alien Three and then I'll sort of yeah. share how I, I do know. like <laughs> in Aliens how Sigourney Weaver is sort of surrounded by some more competent people this time around. Yeah, you know? there's I, I love I think the Marine characters are hilariously like overdone. Um, like they, they're just like comically space Marines, you know, space Marines. And, uh, (laughs) I will say the big problem I have with 
aliens is Vasquez. Yeah. It's great to have a strong female character. I I think she's great and I but the thing is is that that is she's that's not a Hispanic woman. That is a that's, Jewish, that's woman. A Jewish woman. Yes. In like brown makeup and I'm just like, ah, maybe in, I mean, it was 1986. It was a different time, but I'm pretty sure that um uh, you know, dressing up as other races was still not a good idea then. So I think as long as we keep that in mind, I do like Vasquez as a character. She's she's a badass and she's played with all. It's a lot of fun, but like maybe next time we never do that again. Yeah. <laughs> um, but honestly, and this is my hot take. I think Alien Alien is clearly the better movie. It is all all around the better movie. I like watching Aliens more. I can watch that more times, and I have uh, a great time with it. It is it is my personal favorite of the franchise. But if you wanted to look at it objectively, I would say probably Alien is the is the best. Um, but let's get it. So it's usually the conversation for the Alien franchise is between those two, which is better, Alien or Aliens, and it's mainly you know Coke or Pepsi. It's just a matter <laughs> of preference. But let's. But then talk- you got RC Cola coming. Yeah, in. R- not not to say that it's. it's- <laughs> This is maybe not appropriate. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the the dark horse is um, Alien Three, which came out in the uh, early 1990s. It is di- famed Oscar-winning director David Fincher's first film, first big film. He's coming off of this career of making music videos for Madonna and other pop artists, and he's like, you know what, I'm going to do – he moves into film, and they choose him to do Alien 3. Huge names in this franchise. Massive names uh, for for him. And, you know, uh, Scorny Weaver returns to play Ellen Ripley, and um, – it seems like all the pieces are on the board for this to be good. And yet, and yet, Matt, I think you've got some thoughts on Alien 3. Where are you at with this one? So you said, objectively, uh, Alien is a better movie. Aliens is maybe your favorite. I go, Alien is definitely a better movie. Alien 3 is 100% my favorite. Wow. Whoa. I love this movie. That is a steaming take. <laughs> now, now I with love this movie. What is scolding. What about Alien 3 speaks to you let's let's set it up real quick so alien takes place on the nostromo this is the first appearance of the alien you know it's all in this one ship aliens they head back to the planet where they finally where they originally found the the alien and uh they're trying to save a colony that had been established there and has since been attacked by a horde of the xenomorphs alien three they wind up on a prison planet with possibly one of the darkest openings like they took just the the darkest turn into this movie if you could speak a little bit about that Matt. Yeah, so the dark turn is one of my favorite aspects of the movie. Um you go from sort of like this really fairy tale happy ending of aliens and you've got these great characters that aliens establish and then it's just like opening scene all of them are dead except for Ripley. <laughs> and it's yeah, they, just and I love that. I was like, "Oh, wow, like if this is where we're going to start, where are we going to go from here?" Yeah. And the movie only gets more depressing, and I love it. I eat it up. <laughs> it is yeah, it is a difficult movie to watch. Um and it's a very interesting setting because they're on this prison planet of all men. Yes. And they have made this like religious sort of pact or this religious idea of like they will not, you know, think of women and they're they're there to be pious and they are there to think on their sins. And then, you know, they throw a woman into the mix. They throw in Ellen Ripley and it just gets really weird and dark and freaky from there. 
Um, it's not a sequel that could be made nowadays. Something that's no so comfortable way. wrapping itself up in darkness, right? Yeah, this is like I don't think any exec if if say if Alien and Aliens were made today, I think the exec would just fire just fire Fincher, <laughs> fire the writer, get me someone that's going to play ball because as the story goes and the story be- behind Alien Three. It's pretty well documented, and people have talked about it a lot at length. But as the story goes, 20th Century Fox wanted another Aliens. They wanted another, you know, big budget kind of war movie that would easily get butts in seats. David Fincher, however, is just like, no, I want to go back to the first one. I want the horror. I want the suspense. I want this to really freak people out. The dread. Yeah. So it uh, results in one of the great studio director clashes over a franchise. And uh, a lot of people think alien three comes out to mixed results. Um, obviously Matt is a big, most fan. people do. Most people, <laughs> most people do not like this movie, but I love it. Yeah. It's uh, and, and there is something for me when I've watched it, um, I did not see it until it was out on DVD. I never, you know, I, I basically didn't pay attention to it and I watched it and then I found, I was like, okay, this is like kind of cool, but also I don't know if I like this, but then I came across the assembly cut. Now, have either of you watched the assembly cut of alien three? Yeah, I have I've not. seen it. I've seen it. Okay. Can you give us a little bit of a, do you know what the assembly cut is? Like give yeah. us a little bit of a primer on it. So it's basically the footage they shot that was, you know, more aligned with like Fincher's vision of the movie. Uh, and, you know, as it exists now on the DVD and the Blu-ray, it's a straight up assembly. The scenes that are in there are put in there, like from VHS rips and things like that. So like, it's very obvious which scenes have been added back into the movie, not like a typical director's cut. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it's a lot more character building. It's, uh, it's totally different stuff with the alien. Um, it's, uh, um, it's more it's more in line with Fincher's vision, but because it's just an assembly, it's still not like a real you know movie. It's yeah. an assembly. Um, do you, so? Do you just pre- straight up prefer the original Alien Three, the regular theatrical cut, or do you think that the assembly cut has some merit to it? I think the assembly cut has a lot of merit to it. Uh, I, I even before ever seeing that though, Alien Three was still my favorite. Yeah. Um, but you know, seeing that sort of almost justified it a little bit more for me. It was like, oh look, this is where it was going. You yeah. know, like this is it could have been really really cool, and more people probably would have liked it if it would have went this way. Um, but yeah, even even still, you know people who haven't seen that and don't really want to see it i still stand by alien 3 as a great movie on its own and now what was the what was the next movie after that i'm trying to think about it alien resurrection alien resurrection i don't know if i ever saw that wow 19 you're you're not alone Um, (laughs) not a lot i feel like not a lot of people have really either they saw it when it came out or like they saw it by accident like most people do not go seeking out alien resurrection um that one was released in 1997, directed by Jean-Pierre Dejeuner, I believe. Um, yeah, a French director who was really more well-known for uh, his experimental works. Um, he actually went on to direct um, the Oscar-winning Amelie, uh, which is like this That's beautiful French... Yeah, it's a great movie, but he... Um, yeah, uh, it's uh, Jean-Pierre Jeunet, uh and he directed Amelie, but first he directed Alien Resurrection, which is almost it's loosely based. Yeah, it's it's Amelie it, loosely based. 
Arcana. <laughs> it's it's astounding in its uh, in its execution. I I think this is like prof- one of the most profoundly weird things they could have done. Is with that this you whole franchise. trying to find like the nicest thing you can to say about it? <laughs> well, how yeah, do you feel of. about that movie? It's I. I had not again not watched it until I had the box set of all the Alien movies. Okay, um, which is weird because I was just like, you know what? I like these first two. Why not have all four? Um, and watching Alien Resurrection, I was just like, this is just so bizarre in what it's trying to do, and it looks so strange, and everything's just so much grimier and weirder and it's just got a weird cast map what do you how do you feel about alien resurrection so yeah i love alien 3 alien resurrection there's no defending that's really? just a bad movie but i will say it's a terrible movie i, I don't <laughs> think it's good i don't like it but if it's on i don't turn it off <laughs> yeah this, this might it's, as well happen it's, it's kind of just like the perfect uh train wreck to just sort of have on and be like what's going on oh nope there's a <laughs> there's somebody in like a spider web of alien goo and there's an alien baby trying to I don't yeah, know. There's, a, there's, there's that McDonald's <laughs> breakfast menu yeah. practical effect. Yeah. <laughs> the face huggers and all that. Yeah. yeah. Would you, would, well, how do you say the face huggers are made? Oh, yeah. So it, the way that the in the specifically in the first one, when the uh, android is dissecting the uh, the face hugger, it just looks like somebody ordered everything off of the uh, McDonald's breakfast menu and then just covered in like a thin layer of mucus or something. <laughs> <laughs> and that holds it. That is that is the whole franchise. Um if, yeah, if you thought if the if the xenomorph freaked you out, if the facehugger freaked you out, wait till you see the human alien hybrid that get that comes around in this movie, <laughs> and it has it's like a dog. Like that's it has, resurrection. Yeah, more or wow. less. Like that's basically the end sequence. Is there's an alien human hybrid that has like skin it has like human skin and like a skull and like a like you know where a no a nose sock you know like a skull you have like the where the nose would be yeah sure it's got that but it's got you know the big the big head and Huge like gem. the yeah the teeth it is it is sincerely one of the most freaky things I've yeah. ever seen. I'm just like, why? Why would you do this? <laughs> so this this ties into what I liked about Ripley and Alien 3 and don't like about Ripley so much in Aliens and, and Alien Resurrection. So I think with Alien and Alien 3, you've got this strong female character who's smart and, you know, badass. And, like, in Alien 3, she's the only woman on this planet. They're like, stay away from these men. These are like rapists and murderers and stuff like that. The first the first thing she does is go into like the lunchroom with all of them in yeah. Alien 3, and she just sits with them, and she's just like, I'm here. Deal with it. You know, she ends up hooking up with a doctor uh, who, you know, she's leaving the planet, she yeah. thinks. And she's just like, I'm going to hook up with this guy, you know, whatever. And it's and it's no big deal. It's like she's just a strong female character who knows. And, and it seemed like with Alien – Aliens and Alien Resurrection, the only way they knew how to write Ripley as a strong female character is like, make her a mom. Yeah. That's it, They were like, they had this great writing for one and three for Ripley where they were just like, yeah, she's just a strong female, you know, lead and she's a badass and, you know, she makes her own decisions. And then it's like Aliens, they just were like, well, why is she, you know, fighting this alien? Oh, she's protecting this girl who's like now her adopted kid. And then yeah. Alien Resurrection is just like, oh, now she's having a baby alien human hybrid thing oh, and yeah, she's got to take care of that. And it's just like. So that's like that's your idea of a strong female, and I'm not saying that mothers aren't strong. No, you know people because they're the strongest, but still, like it's like 
it just kind of it's falls. just like lazy writing or something yeah. like that where it's just like how do we make a strong female character make her a mom yeah <laughs> funnily <laughs> enough that's actually a question that your film take back the knife almost uh addresses but that's crazy alien resurrection has a xenomorph human hybrid oh and i haven't even told you the best part <laughs> oh, this is not even handle th- this is not even the original ripley ripley dies in alien 3 Okay. She she <laughs> throws herself to to like she sacrifices herself because she's been impregnated. Yeah. The ultimate pro choice exactly you know, moment. This Boom. Great pro choice moment. She's she, like, I don't want to live, and I don't want this monster to live. So she yeah. jumps into this lava, yeah. and that's it for Ripley. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> as far as as far as anyone was concerned at the end of Alien Three, that was supposed to be kind of it. Well, this and then you get Alien Resurrection where she's cloned. There's like this whole thing where there's clones of Ripley, like hundreds of clones of Ripley because they're trying to get that. It's a queen alien that's inside of her. So they're trying to get that out of her. And it's, oh, my God. Ron Perlman is in this movie. Um, It was actually one of the people that worked on it was Joss Whedon. He had like an he walked away from it after a while. He was just like, this is this is BS. Like, I can't even handle this. But Joss Whedon was attached to this project. It's just a total weird uh, mishmash of things. Um, For the sake of time, we're going to combine kind of the next four movies. Speaking of hybrids. (laughs) Into two. Yeah. Into two kind of uh, couplets. Sure. First, I want to talk about Prometheus and Alien Covenant because they are kind. This is that really is a resurrection of the franchise of sorts. Because after 1997's Alien Resurrection, nobody's interested in this anymore. No one wants to touch it. 20th Century Fox is like, well, this is kind of going to be dead for a while, and uh, they do eventually talk about it. They get they bring it back with the Alien versus Predator franchise, but we'll get to that. Um but to get back to like proper alien movies, we do 2012's Prometheus. They get Ridley Scott back on board. Um they kind of br- try to bring it back to this kind of space thing. It's going to take place in space and it's going to be um you know, very futuristic, very fu- uh futurologist sort of thing. And uh it works for all the bells and whistles <laughs> it's very similar to the original yeah i think i think prometheus is like one of the earliest one of the earlier uh signifiers of the soft reboot um yeah. sort of craze matt how do you feel about prometheus i like prometheus uh i think it's a it's a unique yeah sort of blip in the alien franchise it's like completely different but yet feels feels like the first movie Mm -hmm. uh despite the story being completely different but uh i do love that like it's a prequel to alien but it's obviously made in 2012 and the technology is amazing yeah it is alien which is supposed to happen afterwards you see them like looking at computer screens and it looks like pong so yeah (laughs) the logic is a little flawed but it's uh i you know i immediately forgive it because alien prometheus is such like an interesting movie yeah there's a lot of philosophy going on um it's ridley scott really thinking about god and man and creation (laughs) he's really into that these days it seems like (laughs) but it's it's like to be fair it's a really cool road to go down i mean he kind of did that with blade runner Mm. this this feels more like the alien franchise meets blade Blade Runner's like kind of high-minded thinking and it works at times it works it doesn't work at other times mm-hmm. um the horror I think the horror elements that are there do largely work um famous more or less famously the uh the abortion scene mm-hmm. quote um where they put with uh, Numi Rapace yeah they put Numi Rapace into this machine cuz she's 
been impregnated with this thing and it gets cut out of her. That made me squirm. Like oh, I was yeah. really it's like, gross. it's super gross. Um, but a lot of people that don't like Prometheus point out the lack of character development. Um, they point out, and I think unfairly they point out like, these logic problems with the movie like well why would they take off their helmet if they're you know they're on an alien planet it's like no well they explain that the atmosphere is safe and they make a dumb decision they shouldn't have taken off their helmets but they did anyway um if you, if you wouldn't have the dumb decisions you wouldn't have a movie yeah like, if, like, if people didn't I'm immediately act ready to forgive that like i yeah. want to i want to see their dumb decision i want to see what's going to happen you know like precisely I don't know. I don't know why people complain about that exactly the whole thing uh with how she she has the abortion scene and she gets her stomach stapled up and then she's able to run afterwards it's just like, yeah. would you? I mean, that that I can understand because would it have built tension if she's having struggle, you know, mm. struggling to move? Yeah, but also at the same time, like she, it's future technology. She gets this spray on her belly. Who knows how has to, how yeah. fast it can heal her and what she's able to push past in terms of pain. And uh, yeah, I think Prometheus gets a little unfairly criticized. Um, there there are things that aren't great about it. It does get a little bit out there in terms of its um sure it's like philosophizing and stuff but i thought it was an interesting place to go with the franchise very much centered in that female uh strong female lead gender role defying female role and i feel like not a lot of people talk about that you have um numir pace as elizabeth shaw the scientist who you know she is the the de facto ripley in this but you also have Michael um, Fassbender, Michael as Fass- David, <laughs> fantastic woman, fantastic woman. Um, <laughs> well, let's Char- not. Well, let's Char- not- Charlie's Theron, though, as oh, yeah. uh, Peter Whalen's daughter, and, and like, she's great she's, in that. Yeah, she's dealing with the whole father-daughter relationship, and her father's like this impotent old man and just wants to live forever. And again, it's like this like guy piercing the worst old age makeup oh, I've ever Jesus. seen. Jesus. <laughs> it is. It's like you, that's all it looks like. It just looks Cast like an older guy. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like old man guy. It looks like guy Pierce just put on a mask. Like, yeah. Halloween mask. <laughs> um, but Charlie's there on dealing with, uh, you know, the, hu- again, the hubris of man, the arrogance of man trying to find their creator and stuff. Having to live under the shadow of her father. Right. Exactly. And as you said, Michael Fassbender as uh, David the Android, great turn for him yeah. at, in a character. I thought David was very interesting. I thought great character. And uh, for those of you that have seen Alien Covenant, he's the connective tissue between all of this. So uh, he becomes more or less the main character in Alien Covenant. So we've all seen Alien Covenant, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and that's a little bit of a turn for the series, right? More, yeah. They, um, I feel like they heard the negative reactions to Prometheus, and they're just like, "Well, we kind of can't ignore this now. Yeah. We kind of went all in on Prometheus, and it didn't turn out the way we thought it would." So, um, they try to, I feel like, bridge the gap of sorts and be like, "Yeah, we're not going to pretend like Prometheus never happened, but let's just kind of give the people what they want." Yeah, they're diving headfirst into that question that Prometheus asks about the nature of existence, yeah. creation, mm-hmm. and like where, uh, you know, basically where the xenomorphs come from. Yeah, I where mean, do artificial beings. Yeah, play in that you know in the natural order of things. What did you think about Alien Covenant? Man? I, I, like I liked it, I did. Yeah. But I, my problem with it was, and and again, I liked the movie. But my problem with it was that it didn't know whether it wanted to be a Prometheus movie or an Alien movie, 
And I, I mean that in like terms of pacing because we have this great like early on alien attack uh when they first get on the planet and they're they're not quite the aliens we know and love yet but they're like versions of and there's this brutal scene and first couple people get taken out in the group and it's just great and then the movie slows down and gets back into prometheus territory before we get back to more alien action Mm -hmm. and it's almost as if the movie couldn't make up its mind what it wanted to do and i understand they had to wrap up that prometheus story but like the the placement of scenes almost was just like yeah. you know it sucked the air out of some of the the cool alien stuff they were doing early on and there's a ridiculous speed to this movie there um i don't know if you guys noticed this but like i feel like everything in alien covenant just happens so damn fast yeah. after like except like even in the opening of the movie i mean you have to have some sort of disaster to open up the movie i get that but like pretty much they kill <laughs> In in the shortest cameo I've ever seen, they killed James Franco immediately. You see these um, squinty eyes. Is that James Franco? Yeah. You're damn right it I'm is. I'm pretty sure when Connor and I were watching it, you turned to me and we're just like, wait, is that James Franco? <laughs> or And we were asking ourselves, wait, where is it? James Franco is in the cast, right? And then immediately he dies in like a pod fire. And yeah. And it's just, it's ridiculous. And um, it things just move along so quickly from there. It's like... I think the best way I heard it described was somebody said it was like alien greatest the alien greatest hits at like two times the speed. Yeah. They try to hit all the things that people want to see out of they want the gore and they want the scares and they want the face huggers and they want the xenomorph and they want this. But at just a breakneck speed that doesn't allow you to enjoy it as much as you wish you could. I thought it was a good movie. I think it's a solid entry into the series, but um it's just, uh, but in that it maybe, could have been a lot better. Maybe in that overly fast pace, well, overly fast pacing, mm-hmm. it's uh, an alien movie for the modern age. Perhaps, yeah. I think that might be a way to look at it with uh, with Alien Covenant. Um, it actually did not do as well. F- I mean, they weren't sure how it was going to do financially. Yeah. Pe- granted, people are less people are going to the movies, but uh, there was an article in Forbes showing that uh, Alien Covenant actually opened behind uh, Alien versus Predator into that, not even adjusted for inflation. Um, Alien Covenant made less money in its opening weekend than Alien versus Predator. Now, granted, that's like a what thirteen year difference in yeah. in release, and, and people are a little skeptical about pe- the franchise. Exactly. So, um, but it wasn't like this big hit that I don't know if they thought it was going to be a big hit. Maybe they. We're just hoping for something modest after Prometheus was not the critical darling that they all assumed it would be. So, um, but as far as I can tell, they're going to make another one. Yeah, I think um, they should. of this of this Alien prequel series. Um, we'll see how it goes. But speaking of Alien versus Predator, really, really quick, we got it. We got speed through it. Here we go. Uh, Alien versus Predator. One of those half-baked ideas <laughs> I think I've ever really encountered with... It's with a crossover the... episode for two and a half hours. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Freddy versus Jason did well. What other properties do we have? What can we make from fight? And then they did that, and it's like, we should not do any more fighting movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and to be fair, there is there is a basis for it. There were comic books. There were comic book series of Alien versus Predator. There were video games based on those on that premise. But uh, it's a serviceable action movie. Yeah, it's a serviceable. I think it's a lot better than 
people might give it credit for. The first one directed by Paul W.S. Anderson of Resident Evil fame. He does a decent job, but, like, if you look at Resident Evil and you look at Alien vs. Predator, it's virtually the same movie. And they even (laughs) use the same tropes of, like, oh, we're going to switch between scenes by showing uh, laser maps of this underground facility that they're all going into. That's funny. I never even thought about that. Yeah, yeah man. It totally it's, is the same thing. I just I just <laughs> watched it, you know, the last week, and I was like, oh, my God, this is just Resident Evil again, but with aliens and predators. And to be fair, the, you know, Alien vs. Predator keeping the strong female lead thing going and also casting a woman of color as as the female lead. So socially progressive maybe kind of up to you but uh it's just a straight up action film and um largely not even considered part of the alien franchise yeah you can base with the alien franchise you can either say it's six or eight films long um the first six being the other ones that we just talked about and then the two kind of black sheep of the family being alien versus predator and alien versus predator requiem which Connor, oh. I think you – I was watching it the other day, and you said one of the best things I've ever heard about this movie. <laughs> so what is the premise of this film? In a franchise that's maybe known for cooking out very serviceable sequels, what happens in Alien vs. Predator 2? It centers around a town that is being besieged by a ton of aliens and also a ton of predators, right? Yeah. Or maybe – is it just one At predator? Least w- a minimum of one predator. Yeah. There's just I think the, there's one scene in that movie that is the perfect example that just sums it all up. There's a maternity ward, and there are all of these uh, pregnant women that have had their that have been you know face hugged or whatever. And so you see all of this gore that you would imagine. And this is where I, I told Tom it's like so the director is just given this really lukewarm uh, idea, and he just has to come up with a direction and he sits down and he thinks about it and what does he decide on complete and utter human debasement (laughs) it's it it totally paints the human beings in this film as nothing more than just fodder yeah i mean have you seen alien versus predator requiem yeah that is why i like that movie yeah (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it is it is oddly enjoyable isn't it yeah alien versus predator just like made me angry i didn't didn't like it i really have nothing good to say about that one so i'm not gonna say anything at all but uh alien alien versus predator requiem kind of a blast yeah (laughs) terrible movie but a really good time (laughs) that's some serious business uh with the alien franchise just a ridiculously long study in how to break down the human spirit um and I'm still I'm still a fan. I'm still always gonna watch them. Uh, I think I, I'm I'm on Matt's side with uh, with Alien Three. I think it's a perfectly good and defendable movie. Um, and Connor, are you still part on board for the Alien franchise? I'm absolutely a fan. I loved Alien Covenant. Gotta say, really yeah. liked it. I'm excited for the next one. All right. Well, that's that's our first installment of series business. That definitely went. That was a long one, but uh, it's, it's a long franchise. Series. Yeah, quite series business. All right, so that's going to bring us to the end of the show. Uh, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Um, Matt Stork, writer, director, Chicago-based writer and director, who has his new film, uh, Take Back the Knife. 
tell the people where they can watch it. Where can they get it? Where can they watch it? So definitely follow us on uh, Facebook. We are uh, just Take Back the Knife. Just search it. We're the only one. Um, like us, and then you can buy the movie from directly from the Facebook or on lcfilmsonline.com, which is the distributor of the movie, uh, Blu-ray and DVD. And you said the Blu-ray has some bonus features. Blu-ray has some bonus features. You want to see some outtakes and some bloopers and just us messing around? That's what you need to pick up. That's a, you <laughs> know awesome. what? If you're going to buy physical media, for the love of God, get something with the special features. Because <laughs> the movie is great. But don't you want to see everything else that went on? Like That's, that's like the total fun of it. So yeah. uh, take back the knife. A great subversion of horror tropes and horror movies in general. Uh, thank you again so much, Matt Stork, for coming on the show. Um, hopefully we'll get to see you again soon. Let us know if you got any uh, more projects coming up. For sure, yeah. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. And uh, if uh, check out uh, Gorilla Tango Theater. Come see Assault on the yes, Greenhouse, my that show right. that's thank happening you. right now. Um, uh, we'll be there until June 29th, uh, every Thursday at 930. Uh, if you want to see the strangest, grossest, weirdest improv you've ever seen, come to Gorilla Tango Thursdays, 930. <laughs> that's it. All that's right. the that's the best pitch I've ever heard. <laughs> All right. This has been No Coast Cinema here on WGM+. Plus. You can find new episodes every single Monday here on uh, WGNRadio.com. Just click the WGN Plus tab and look for No Coast Cinema. You can also Google us. We're, I found this out. We are the first hit. If you, yeah. search, if you search No Coast Cinema, we're <laughs> the first hit. So take that No Coast Cinema in Wichita, Kansas, and <laughs> Google. Come on the show. Yeah, come on the show, Google. <laughs> we got to thank you for your help. Uh, but, yeah, new episodes every single Monday. And um, – you know, it's a lot of fun. We're going to be on iTunes very, very soon. Stay tuned for that. And we're also going to be on the WGM Plus app very, very soon. Uh, for all the updates you want on the show, give us a like on Facebook. Uh, just search No Coast Cinema Podcast on Facebook. Like it. You're going to get the new episodes every week in addition to some fun little goodies in between. We're going to be promoting everybody that we talk to uh, and giving you little teasers of what's coming up next on the show we'll see you next monday good morning good evening and good night I mean, it's a cool idea. There's some cool stuff that happens, but overall, Halle Berry's not... good. Halle Berry? Halle Berry's in uh, Alien vs. Predator, isn't no, she? No, she isn't. Isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> isn't she?